Love the Mom and Miss Not a Podcast. We have Ariel with us today talking about mental health as she is a therapist. So we're going to get right into lots of goodness. Um, Ariel, thank you so much for being here with us today. This is something that is so near and dear to my heart, and I feel like there's so much we can learn, and we're continuing to learn about mental health. So I really appreciate your time and insight on this topic. I'm yeah. super stoked. Happy to be here. Um, well, I'm so happy to have you. Um, what do we misunderstand about mental health? What do we misunderstand? I think <laughs> that's such a big question. Um, I think one of the things that I hear the most right now is that COVID started a mental health crisis. Mm. We already had a global mental health crisis. COVID just exacerbated the mental health crisis that we already had. You know, it, it didn't totally, it didn't start it. It was already here. Um, mm -hmm. And then if we take that one layer further, and I think we probably will get into this a little more deeper as we talk, I think food and nutrition plays a major part in the global mental health crisis. Oh my gosh. I was just reading a headline today and last night and they're like, oh, processed foods are linked to X, Y, and Z. And I think they were talking about like cancer and stuff, but I was like, duh. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't need to be a scientist and I, I figured that out. So I just, the fact that you said that, I'm like, oh, well, yeah. How about that? Um, who can be affected by mental health? Everyone can be. Yeah. Everyone can be affected by anyone and everyone. Um, unfortunately, women statistically are predominantly suffer from more mental mm. health conditions. Again, I think there's a subcategory to that, that I think uh, stereotypically women will mm -hmm. seek help for those conditions so mm. that it's not documented and not as much male cases are documented just because I don't think they're seeking as much help. It's a little more stigmatized mm. still. Um, you know, I don't like to split men and women, but we have to do that sometimes. Well, my husband's very British and he doesn't want to talk about anything. So that plays into stereotypes. <laughs> yeah, there's cultural factors too, but just mm -hmm. talking about kind of gender, then yeah. I mean, uh, you know, cisgender females uh, are typically um, struggle with more mental health issues in their lifetime than a cisgender male will. Hmm. That's very interesting. I was reading... Um, as we're recording this, it's September, which is National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. And I was just reading statistics about all different people. And it's pretty crazy that like, it, it's like women are more prone to be, um, to like something like having suicidal thoughts, but men are more likely to take action or something crazy like that. It was something I read. I was like, oh, that's quite what a dynamic. I don't know. It's just really, it's just really interesting. I think like mental health in general, how do, how and when can symptoms appear and what do those, what can, what can those symptoms look like? Cause that's, I mean, I know it's different for different scenarios and situations and people, but what are some general things people could look for if someone might not be well? Yeah. General symptoms appear, which is, you know, I think really important to recognize half of symptoms appear at age 14 statistically, mm. which is Interesting. pretty wild statistic. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if 
we think of mental health as, you know, an adult crisis and it's not, it's uh, it's a youth crisis uh, that starts in youth. And then I guess you jump up into your early twenties or even prior. I don't remember that exact statistic. I know I researched a little bit before our interview, but somewhere in like late teen, early adulthood are, you know, that's about 75% of mental health cases are reported in that, you know, in that age, but by 14, you know, that's half, that's a, that's a lot. So, that's crazy. Oof. Yeah. So it's not, uh, it's all everyone and anyone. I don't, you know, it's hard to split it into categories and we of course can mm-hmm. get there. Like I was saying, it is more prevalent in women, but, um, but it's not something, I mean, it affects all people, all economic statuses, you know, all genders, all cultures. It mm-hmm. is a global crisis. And is there anything like loved ones can look out for if they're concerned about the well-being? Like, is there anything we should pay attention to or like shifts or behaviors that yeah, I might mean, warrant an intervention? are going to be general a little bit in that, you know, you have your typical behavior. And if you're seeing mm-hmm. something outside of that norm, that typical behavior, then we want to address it. Um, how are you? You know, I noticed that you're acting different or this has changed mm-hmm. or you're not taking care of yourself. And those are things that I address in session too. And, and definitely mm-hmm. look for body language changes, um, care of personal hygiene and things of that mm-hmm. nature. Um, those are all, those can all be red flags. Um, it's sometimes there's no red flags and yeah, you, we have to, I think just, um, it's a, it's a nuanced conversation. Sometimes mm. somebody might be really sad and then all of a sudden they're, they're just p- at peace. That's actually a suicide, um, like warning sign. Interesting. They've gone through this deep crisis or extreme mood irritability or extreme depression. And then all of a sudden they're calm and at peace. Sometimes that means they've made a decision to harm themselves. So that's why they're at peace. Now that's not always the case. We hope Mm -hmm. some people are at peace because they've made peace with their situation or acceptance, Mm -hmm. but that can be a red flag. Or moving through it or growing from it or exactly whatever, whatever it is. That's a, that's a really interesting situation. It's funny that you say that too. Like I remember my, my, um, and I talk a lot, mental health is important to me for my own personal reasons. And then like going to therapists since my parents divorced and all that stuff. But then my sister committed suicide when she was 21, my stepsister. And, uh, one of the things I remember my mom telling me at the time and was like a red flag to her was like, she said, Oh, I love this scarf so much. Like whenever I die, can you make sure I'm buried with it? And you're like, that's a fun, it's an interesting thing to, for someone to say. Yes. But you don't really give it because there's no abnormal, you know, there's, there wasn't any abnormal tea, you know, like it was just like, oh, that's in retrospect, you're like, oh, that was a big red flag. But in the moment you're like, oh, she really loves this scarf. Yeah. Like, yeah. She wants to keep it with her. That's right. That is another thing when people are trying to get their affairs in order. That's a, that's a red flag. And oh, that's so crazy. It, you start to think like, oh, well, if I'm ever not here, I love this scarf. I want it to go to you or, you know, that, mm-hmm. yeah. But in the moment, sometimes we don't think of those things as red flags. We're just like, wow, that's an interesting comment. 
but you know, right, exactly. So yeah. My mom thought yeah. the other thing I thought that was really poignant of you to say is if all, a lot of these like symptoms or scenarios are starting right at like, you know, the teen years at like 14, like puberty, all that stuff. Yeah. It's almost like, where's that fine line between normal teenage behavior? So like, say like my mm -hmm. kid, he, he's been swimming since he was, you know, 18 months old. So if he swims until he's 14 and then he decides he just wants to like rebuke authority and be like, I don't want to swim anymore versus, you know, a cry for help because he's giving up something he loves. I feel like that those teen years are so delicate in that fine line between there could be a problem and it's just typical teenage behavior who Absolutely. just wants to go against authority. Like, how do you navigate that? <laughs> I, don't know. I think, well, we're always leaning in, right? We always want to be mm. checking in with our kids, especially with behavior changes, regardless of if we think that it's going to turn out to be this, you know, very dramatic thing, uh, uncomfortable situation, like they're having suicidal thoughts. But mm. if even if it's just something smaller and we still should lean in and want to know why they're not swimming anymore, um, even if it ends up not being a really big thing, it would still. So I always just look at it like, you know, really any any outside the box behavior. How can we lean in? How can we care for that person? How can we mm -hmm. love them regardless of the size of whatever's underneath of it? it because mm. even if it starts small, it actually could become something yeah. really big too. Yeah. It's like a little, could be like a little domino effect, you know? Yes. One thing or yeah, some, you just never know the battle somebody's fighting. No, um, we don't. And teens often want to share. Uh, that's one thing, not so much with their parents sometimes, depending on the safety and the, you know, that they've created in their mm -hmm. home. But I all the time, you know, get parents that are like, I need my child to come and they're not going to say anything though. You know, and the parents walk out of the room and it's just like, we <laughs> so need to talk and to share and tell me about validation mm. uh, is something that for me, I come back to a lot when I see teens mm. and I think validation with mental health in teens really needs to be um, brushing things under the rug is never appropriate in my book with a teenager. Oh, I think that's so true. I'm just making a note here because validation came up in another podcast that I did. And I think that is something we all are seeking. Um, and if we didn't get it as teens or in childhood or in our early development, like we struggle with that in adulthood. I so think, per well, pers personally for me, like, uh, someone said something to the other day, like, why are you so worried about this? And I was like, I'm a people pleaser. I was like, I'm not going to, it's like, I'm not going to get into the psychoanalytics of it right now. And I was like, and I'm trying to work through that, you know, but it, mm -hmm. it's like, you want that validation. Um, and if you're not getting it, we're like, especially from your parents, like the people who are supposed to be there for you, then what the hell are you supposed to do? Right. Right. And it's really common that we're not, we're not validating our teens that are self-harming mm. or having suicidal thoughts. They're just looking for attention. They're not going to really hurt themselves. I, I hear that more than I would like to admit. Well, they might not, they might be attention seeking, but that one self-harm could lead to accidentally harming themselves for good, you know? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. You just never, you never know when. Doesn't, it's not always obviously an indicator of suicidal behavior whatsoever. Mm. They're two no, that's true. totally different things, but, um, the, whether it's self-harm, whether it's self-harm that is escalating to suicidal behavior or whether it's suicidal ideation, we should be leaning in and caring for and validating these mm-hmm. feelings of teenagers, regardless of their age. And if we think that the behaviors are attention seeking, if they're attention seeking, validating would still be appropriate because we would still be giving them a loving attention that they deserve. Yeah, that's so true. It's, it's also like everybody's feelings are valid. You can't just because I have a a reaction or response to one situation doesn't mean I can expect that same reaction or response, you know, from my kid or from a friend or like my sister, like we all internalize things and perceive situations differently. So if you're not validating, I'm just, you know, I'm just digging through my brain right now, like doing, it's all like marinating in there, like soup. Um, if you're not getting that validating, it's only going to, I I would assume make the situation worse yes, like, it does. because now you're just like, oh, toughen up. It's not that big of a deal or whatever the, the verbiage is, you know, in that particular household. Right. Yeah, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Oh, fascinating stuff. Yeah. Um, what other factors can influence our mental health? For me, um, <laughs> I think I take a functional approach, which is like a term, not that I've coined the term functional, but uh, <laughs> at all. Um, but the way that I look at, I think that, that I am a functional counselor, uh, that part is the coined mm-hmm. term. Um, there's functional medicine and that's really important right, right now. And what everybody's 100%. talking about that and how that's the future of medicine. So as I was going into my practice, I started thinking about, huh, why isn't there functional therapy? And so that's where that came from for me. So for me, my approach is going to be genetics-based, diet, Mm. food-based. And of course, there's history and um, lifestyle Mm -hmm. factors, um, history of mental illness, childhood trauma, adverse childhood experience. Like you can still, I'm not saying... I'm ignoring any of that and just looking at genetics and diet. It's the whole thing. And that's what a functional Mm -hmm. approach is, is really looking at the whole picture and then how it's all kind of combined itself to be what it is today and how it's presenting itself now. So for me, I'm definitely a proponent of looking at genetics, diet, and Mm -hmm. lifestyle factors not just a symptoms-based approach, which not all practitioners huh. do, but what, what, you, you want to get to the bottom of things? What? <laughs> you want to find the root cause? Root cause. Whoa, that's crazy. That Why crazy? would you want to do that? <laughs> it's so crazy. Oh it's, my gosh. And I don't like to <gasps> say negative things about the way other people do things mm-hmm. because we all do things differently and things work differently for everybody. Yeah. Not everyone is going to mm-hmm. want my functional approach. Not every, and some people are going to want a system or symptomatic kind of approach. Yes. Symptomatic approach sometimes. Um, so this is not a negative to people that treat in that way. This is just not how I see myself being Mm. active. And I struggle because often I see clients that come in and say, I've seen another, I've seen other practitioners and, um, they gave me some coping skills for the anxiety that I'm having, but I, no one ever asked me like why I was anxious. Where did that come from? 
what yeah. happened in my childhood? What am I eating? Do I have genetic factors that make me more anxious? Mm. And so I like to work closely with doctors that I trust, functional doctors. Um, I do have, I'm in process of my certified, I'm going to get it wrong exactly. It's like CHIM, yeah. it's certified health integrative practitioner certification. And it's just like a little extra certification that you can do um, so I can integrate kind of supplementation, diet, mm. um, and all of that, which I really enjoy. So I wanted to make sure that I did that, mm-hmm. but I still, I'm not a doctor yet. So I will still work closely with, uh, with medical practitioners and make sure that we're looking at that. I can't, I don't know how I can look at genetics in a very basic way and help you kind of uncover your 23 and me on a very basic level. But if we're really going to get into the methylation process of your body and some things that might be real factors for mental health, we're going to go mm-hmm. see somebody else for that and work with me, but, but also bring in practitioners that can help in that area. So that's how I see myself doing this a little bit differently than other people might do it. I see. I think that's so cool. Uh, I, when I have a go-to functional nutritionist that I bring on the podcast periodically. And one of the best things we, she said in a podcast, she's like, we can't talk about gut health without talking about mental health, you know? And she's like, your vagus nerve connects the two. And I was like, you know, like get all the things I didn't know I needed to know. Um, and, and that for me, was like, ah, shit. Like, what are you putting in your body? How are you fueling yourself? And I started thinking about how I felt like the best in my, in my life. And I, I literally just said this the other day and it was when I was working at a restaurant that was very clean and the food was just organic and, you know, there were no pesticides and there's no dirty dozen and all that stuff. So anybody who's like a health guru would kind of understand, or, you know, even into eating cleanly, we'll yeah. understand what all those terms mean. And it was just amazing to be like, reflect upon like, oh, well, what am I eating now? <laughs> what did I eat then? <laughs> like, And how that impacts. I think a function, I think it's, I think it's hard to attack any health ailment, whether it's mental, mental, physical, emotional, um, even if it's a disease without looking at your surroundings and your diet, you know, and Again, mm-hmm. diet as in nutrition, not necessarily like, oh, you need to go on a diet and it's keto no. or no carbs. It's what are you filling your body with? Yes. Because I think it all does play into it. It matters so, so much. I love one of my favorite things to do is a food mood diary. Oh, shit. <laughs> Crap. Don't make me do that. <laughs> <laughs> I will fail. Eat I mean, I guess it's failing. Right. But... Eat the food. So peanut- me- how you feel, right? So peanut butter cups and coffee aren't the best thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it's so good. <laughs> Sometimes peanut butter cups can make us feel better. I'm not. I mean, everything that. in moderation. Yeah. Right? Everything in moderation. I mean, what other, what simple life choices um, could we start making now that might help adjust our mental state for the better? For me, with this functional approach in mind, yeah. For me, it's food, movement, and sleep. Mm. And mm. then my only subcategory to sleep is going to be screens. Well, it's a subcategory mm. to everything. Screens is is going to hover there no matter what. Um, but food, movement, and sleep, I think, 
are going to help no matter what. And then controlling how much we're on screens and light and circadian rhythm and things of that nature mm. and how that's affecting mm. us, uh, which I think is dramatically affecting us as a culture, our ability to lose weight, um, process our nutrients while we sleep because our because we have light in our face until such a late hour, our bodies are not mm. going into a true rest or digest, um, which keeps our blood sugar levels up, which doesn't allow us to process our nutrients, which doesn't allow us to just a million different things, go into a true state of digestion and um, fasting. So, mm. Interesting. so the screen plays into food and activity and, um, and sleep too. So I hate, I have to put that as like a kind of banner across everything else. And I also think screens influence our, you know, the lack of movement, of course, because, oh, I'll do that soon. I'm scrolling, mm. scrolling, scrolling. Um, and then you never get up or, um, you pretty <laughs> all of us. That's not, yeah, that's, uh, I'm a hundred percent guilty as much as I preach that. I never pretend that that's not something I don't, we all struggle with. And mm -hmm. then I think food too, we're looking at like beautiful images of food sometimes. Um, you know, so what are we feeding ourselves with? Who are you following? Are you following people, um, on social media that are telling you to eat really good things? Or are you following like, you know, your favorite baker that makes you want to make cupcakes every Saturday afternoon or whatever, which I love cupcakes, but, um, I think there's a time and a place. And I right, think, exactly. So, so really just, I think food movement and sleep would probably be my three like main things that I would have to say there. But of course there's kind of subcategories to those as well. So let's get into a little bit from like a maternal aspect or like pregnancy. Can you speak a little bit about postpartum depression and anxiety? Like or what sure. the causes are and, sure. you know, what we should look for. Sure. There's no identifiable cause for either, mm. um, like a specific, this is it kind of thing. Got it. You know, but Makes obviously sense. physical factors like hormones, body changes, um, and then emotional um, factors like lack of sleep, um, you know, the unknown, like caring for this especially first time moms. I've never done this before. I don't know what I'm doing. That's mm -hmm. an emotional factor. Those all contribute to PPD and um, postpartum anxiety and depression. Um, so I can't, I think it's really hard to say that there's a cause. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. I get that. But how can food and sleep and movement not be a factor? Mm. That makes sense. Especially when we're eating the way we do. And I think that this may be a controversial statement, but a lot of people give pregnant women a pass. You're only pregnant a couple times, eat whatever you want. I don't agree with that. I eat avocado toast every morning. <laughs> <laughs> but is that, I mean, like, what? that's a good thing to eat that's like cheese every day but i, think, I also yeah. have friends that are like well i'm only pregnant a couple times so i'm gonna eat a tub of ice cream every night and that i just i can't get behind that statement and i don't know how that would contribute to positive mental health you know either prior or postpartum i i ate a box of mac and cheese one time when i was pregnant that was it 
I just, it was so good. Like the Kraft Mac and Cheese, man. Like yeah. it might have even been like the Annie's or like a Trader Joe's variety of it. But like, I think it's so, it's easy to say, oh, eat what you want because you're eating for two. But if you actually like dive into it, they say doctors recommend only taking in like 300 more calories a day, three to 500, depending. It's not, which isn't actually a lot. Right. That's like the whole tub of Ben and Jerry's, by the way. <laughs> the whole pint is like, <laughs> right. it's like. 1600 calories. So you're, you've definitely overshot That's your day. That's your whole day. It's <laughs> your um, whole day. Calories. Still your whole day. <laughs> I, I, I was in that camp and I had people that said that to me, like, I'm, you know, I never shy away from the fact that, you know, this was not me. Um, I didn't mm-hmm. discover how nutrition affected my body till after, um, at least two mm. children were born, you know? So I'm not saying this because I did this perfectly. I'm saying this because I believe it to be true with everything that I've learned and study, you know, for the past five, 10 years. So, um, mm. but I just don't think it's a pass. I don't think it's a pass to eat like shit. I think it's the probably one of the most important times to eat well when we're creating yeah. another body. <laughs> so I would concur with that statement a hundred percent. What, um, specific to postpartum depression or anxiety, anxiety, are there any symptoms that, um, significant others should be on the lookout for in order to help their partner transition or get them support that they need? Yeah, it's, there's a big difference. Well, there's no, there's a subtle difference between baby blues and postpartum depression and Mm -hmm. they classify them as, you know, two different things. You go, sometimes we can be sad and have some mood swings Mm -hmm. and feel overwhelmed, but we're still doing our daily life and be able to take care of our, the newborn, be able to do like our typical daily activities. Mm -hmm. That would be a little more classified as baby blues. But when we're looking at uh, PPD or PPA, then we're really looking for severe sadness, severe, more severe symptoms that Mm -hmm. last longer and that affect your ability to function in a Mm. typical capacity. Caring for that newborn, um, caring for yourself would be obviously a major red flag. Not wanting to get up out of bed, trouble bonding with that baby. Um, Mm. Those are some things that we all want to just kind of keep an eye out for when we're caring for new moms. Right. You know, as so much talk on the baby, it's like sometimes I think... Yeah. And I think that narrative is shifting a lot with the millennials and younger generation. And, you know, it's not self-care. It's just necessary care. Yeah, It's just, you know, having a, taking a shower, you know, when your baby's three months old is, is not self-care. That's the necessity. necessity. And and it makes me like, I guess I'm probably saying something controversial now. It's like, it makes me angry that we live with these misconceptions of like, this is what it should be or has to be because that's how it's always been. Like, yeah. Okay. Just because something was normalized, you know, doesn't necessarily mean it's should be normalized. Like <laughs> it's just, it's just how, it frustrates me as a, as a woman and as a mom. And it's also the postpartum anxiety I feel like is probably something that's a little bit under discussed. And so many women that I've talked to through this podcast, I mean, they've all said about how their anxiety has just gone through the roof when their baby's here. And I, I liken that too, if I'm on my soapbox for a second, you know, like there is no manual and there's so much information, oh my but not, but not enough of the right information. It's all like regurgitated crap about, and it's just like, you know, 
let's get some good information about moms. You know, let's talk about the pelvic floor. Let's talk about your C-section recovery. Like it's going to look different. There's no universal way to do things. So maybe if we just started empowering moms a little bit more, and that's why I hope women get out of this podcast, like advocate for yourself and what's right for you. And if that means taking a step away and having a couple hours or a day while someone else just holds your baby for you, if that's what you need, like, that's okay. You know, like get, get yourself in a good place. I'm a big advocate. If mom's not okay, no one's okay. Like, yeah. and, and yes. that, that's it. Mic drop. Like, yep. You, you have to be okay. You yes. know, whatever that looks like for you. That's um, right. That's my, I think my Ted talk. You, there wasn't as, <laughs> you can do that. I think there was your podcast. You can do whatever you want. I think there is, um, there's, the historically less, I imagine that there was a lot less anxiety when women came together and cared for one another in their community during childbirth, mm. rather than finding our information out from, you know, news feeds and social media and things mm -hmm. like, because we're, we have access to so much information that triggered something for me when you said that, that how could you not be anxious? When there's like, should I do this or this? Well, these people do this. And I watched my friend and she bought this. And then this person got that stroller and this. It's yeah. like, oh, absolute overload. Instead of, you know, I think how sweet it must have been when we really like had a community of women that all right. cared for one another during those times because they had mm -hmm. been through it because they knew what they needed because mm -hmm. and then there wasn't millions of people to look to for advice there was two or three in your community yeah. that's just a lot less anxiety producing well and they're taking care of you they're not necessarily taking the baby from you you know like everybody wants to come and hold the baby and see the baby but it's like you know what that's mom's bonding time and dad's or whoever the partner is like yeah. who whatever whatever that couple dynamic looks like that's their time with baby like put on a pot of tea draw a bath you know, clean the house. Like, and I think that's what you're talking about back, you know, when there was a community taking care of a mom, it wasn't necessarily that the baby was looked after. It was that all the needs of the family were yes. being looked after. And that the food that just had yeah. the baby. <laughs> she was being looked after. Yes. She didn't have her one gynecologist appointment six weeks after and you're clear to go. No, there was like, <laughs> there Jeez. was a group of people yeah. looking out for her. Yes. So I, 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 we've gotten I away know. from that community model and where we care for each other that way. And there's mm -hmm. just this information overload. How can we not be anxious or sad or mm -hmm. feel overwhelmed? It's, it is and overwhelming. It is so overwhelming. And then the other thing we have to remember is just because our, someone did it a certain way, like our moms did it one way or our sister did it one way, doesn't mean that that needs to be our way. So it's kind of like a dichotomy where you want the information, but you want to be able to take yours and um, use it the way that you need to. Like, this is a controversial statement, 100%. My kid never slept on his back. He was not a back sleeper and all the science and all the things they'll tell you now yep. is that babies need to sleep on their back. But he didn't want to. Well, he didn't want to. No. He slept on his stomach Yeah. and I put him on his stomach and people were telling me like, that's so irresponsible of you. Your baby's going to this, your baby's going to that and da, 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 da. And you know what? He's four and a half years old and he's thriving. 
So, <laughs> oops, you know, but when I was little, it was, you know, babies should be on their side. And there was a point in time where it was recommended for babies to sleep stomach. on their stomach. Yeah. So it's like, I just say that I don't, I've never admitted that to anybody before. So here's my secret. <laughs> there it is. It's um, and my husband was like, I don't know about this. And I was like, trust me. <laughs> just, I mean, I, I survived. My sister's alive. My brother's alive. Like, yeah. Are you paying attention to your kid or not? Yeah. Yeah. I have a few yeah. friends, some very similar, you know, that's how their child would sleep. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's Whoops. that. And that, that part is community having people around you that told you that like, good for you for knowing that about your <laughs> child, instead of seeing on social media that that's not okay. There's a right. big difference. Yeah. I didn't ever tell his pediatrician. <laughs> but <laughs> he did. Ta-da! Um, I'm gonna change gears and go into the you know the happy talk of um yeah suicide again. Yeah. Um, is it what is it? What's an important thing for us to remember about individuals who are coping with mental illness? Mm. Like supporting them in a way, you mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like because you don't want to come out like guns blazing. That's a terrible term considering suicide and gun violence. Um, but you don't want to come out there too hot because that's going to be, but how do you support them in a productive way? Like that, cause that can be tricky. You don't want to push too hard, but you don't want to stand too back. Like, yeah. I don't know. That's yeah, probably it, a tricky question. It is tricky, but I also think that you can do, you can be direct without being aggressive. So mm, okay. if there is a sign or some, a red flag, you can lean in mm -hmm. a little bit. And then if, when you lean in, you maybe recognize another red flag. I don't think it's inappropriate to say, have you ever, you know, thought about hurting yourself mm. with love? Um, I have to do That's that a, a lot. And it was one of the things that was slightly uncomfortable when I first started, um, seeing clients and being a therapist was that's, you know, a lot of times part of intake questions, depending on the type of person you're seeing mm -hmm. you ever, or are you, you know, suicidal? Um, it's a intimate question to ask yeah. when you just meet somebody, but I have to remember that they're there because that's to be intimate with me, you know, mm -hmm. hopefully through that relationship. Um, so I think that that really matters. I think directness really matters. Most people, I would say 99% of people when I ask that question are honest with me to the extent of me knowing that they're being honest. Um, and I think also I see relief in people when they're allowed to get to that say, weight. Yep. You know what I am. And then the next follow-up question is going to be, do you feel safe in your body right now? And then the follow-up question for me is, you know, after that would be, do you have a plan um, in place? And then if they do, wow. then we move forward to safety plan. And um, that will involve removing things from the household that are involved in their plan or could harm them. And, you know, identifying triggers, figuring out people they can call, things they can do. Um, oh, this is uh, something that, 
um, just switched. It's not 911 anymore. It's 988 for suicide. Yeah. That was like newish. And I just wanted to make sure I put a note to bring that up today. Cause I think <laughs> a lot of people that that's I talk right. to don't know the 988. So that's well, they, yeah, they're trying to like direct this right resources to, yeah. you know, yep. So the right places for suicide anymore and 988. And I think that that's a really great thing that they have that crisis line available for people. What I mean, if you look at suicide rates, I should pull up those statistics that I was reading yesterday. Wild. It's it's just wild. And you know, the age groups that are impacted, they're so young. Starting at ten. Yeah. It's like I think the leading cause of death for like ten to fourteen year olds and like the second leading cause of death between yes. like fifteen to twenty year olds or something like that. And you're just like, Yeah. What the fuck? How did that <laughs> like, happen? What? How did that happen? What? How did that happen? That's impossible. I know. As, you know, what's really funny was like told, referring back to that article, I was like, processed foods are like literally giving us every disease. And I started going through my kept pantry this morning. And I was like, that's got to go in the trash. That's got to go in the trash. That's got to go in the trash. Like yeah. how much of these, how much, like are these chemicals like impacting our mental health? Like are I, we, we don't have the answers and we won't know until 20 more years of studies. So like, let's just not be part of the statistics here. Like, you know, one suicide of my yes. family is enough. <laughs> probably, right? It's it probably safe. is. Um, when should people seek out a, a mental health practitioner? Mm. That's a hard question. <laughs> Obviously, it's always great when people come prior to really right. it. Um, totally. That's the best. But we always, we can't always anticipate that. And so, if if something feels unmanageable and you start mm. having negative self-talk. So that's something that is so, so common that, that happens. And that, mm -hmm. that once we get, we start that negative self-talk, which then creates more of a mental health issue, then that's what people come in. So it's a, I'm going to answer the question, but not really. <laughs> so <laughs> That's all right, right? I can do that. Um, you know, I want, I want people to come in when they feel like a feeling is overwhelming and unmanageable, mm. especially when they start saying like, come on, you can handle this. Like, what's wrong with you? Get it together. This, that negative self-talk starts. Then we really start to snowball. And then, so if, if that can be a red flag to people that I'm being hard on myself and I'm talking to myself not like I would talk to my friend or my family. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I just had a client recently who I asked to write down every negative thing she thought about herself during the day and then say it out loud at night to her partner. Mm. Wow. She didn't like that. What an homework. exercise. Yeah. She, she was mad at me about the homework, but you know what? Why would you say that to yourself? You wouldn't say that to anybody else. I mean, my dog gets the best of me because he's always the goodest boy and I love him so much. He's such a sweet boy. And I was literally patting him, I think yesterday morning. And I was like, I never say these words to me. <laughs> like, and I've been thinking, it's, it's crazy you bring that up because I've been thinking a lot about like the messaging we give ourselves and how yeah. we're the hardest. And I, and I mean, my husband, he'll be like, you give me such a hard time. And I'll be like, I'm 
nicer to you than I am to myself, you know, like, so I was like, imagine how hard I am on me. I was like, I'm working on it. You know, like I am not perfect here. Yeah. But I'm talking to all the people who are better at things than I am. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's so important. Like if the, if the dog is getting the best to me, then what the hell am I getting? You know, <laughs> like if he's always a good boy and the sweet and a sweetheart, then I mean, I think I can give a little bit of that to myself. Right. You know? Yes. Yes, or what we is are the words that we're saying and the actions that we are doing, uh, creating vitality, or are they creating suffering mm. in our life? And that's like a really mm. nice stop, right, for people. And if I like that, if you've got more suffering, if you're more in the suffering column, then maybe it's time to see somebody. Mm. Mm. How do you find a professional that's right for you, though? It's like that's hard. That is hard. That is hard. The most important factor is that you have an, uh, you like them like blanket mm. statement. I know like can mean various things that you feel comfortable, safe, that you like mm. them, that you guys have a good therapeutic relationship that actually that factor precedes all other outcome. Like mm -hmm. I can say everything wrong in session. And if you like me and trust me, your outcome is still going to be greater than a therapist that you says everything right that you don't like. It's really funny. It's crazy, uh, but you have to trust and like that person in order pro to progress with them, which makes sense. Mm. But I don't think people recognize how important that is that therapeutic relationship. So, mm -hmm. but there are other factors for people. Cost is a huge factor. And then one of the number one barriers to why people don't seek mental health care. So, if you need to filter by, um, by specialty and cost, mm. and then mm -hmm. maybe narrow it down to a few, then interview those few. Most practitioners often offer like a 15 minute phone consultation or something mm -hmm. of that nature. They might even say, let's come in, let's do a session. Let's try it. If we like each other, great. If not, you know, move on. Mm -hmm. uh, there's Everybody does it differently. I typically offer 15 minutes over the phone. Let's make sure this is going to work at least a little bit. And then we can really tell once we meet. But right. I think narrowing it down by important factors like cost and specialty are a nice way to start. But really, you have totally. to like that person. You have to That makes them. sense. Yeah. I've had some therapists while well, I like, go in and I'll be like, I already know this, 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 and this, I need you to do X, Y, and Z for me. Yeah. And like six sessions in, I was like, do you not remember me saying this to you at the first session? Like, <laughs> I already know that. Yeah. Done that. Or I need you to give me other tools. Come on. <laughs> okay. Bye. Next. Yeah. Next. <laughs> yeah. Well, that also can, even if you like them initially, that can happen too. You know, yeah. a therapist can break the feelings of trust, hopefully they're not actually breaking trust, but like that feeling of trust that you might mm -hmm. have with them by doing something exactly like you mentioned, right? They don't remember your goals or why you said you were there, or they don't stay focused on the things that you want to mm -hmm. stay focused on. Well, you might have liked them in the beginning, but then you might not feel comfortable with them anymore. That would be a reason to switch and find somebody mm -hmm. else. And I try and check in, you know, very periodically with my clients and say, I just want to make sure we're still good. I want to make sure you feel good. We're still on track. Mm -hmm. Are you still feeling comfortable with me? Because if we're not, I'll be the first one to say, let's help. Let me help you find somebody. That's awesome. That's awesome. I've reached out to like old therapists and like, can you ref recommend anybody in my area? 
<laughs> that does it like you do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You want someone that, that you like. Mm-hmm. That matters. Well, and that gives, gives you what you need. If you go in and say, this is my problem. Can you help me get with other solutions? And they're still not helping you with other solutions. It's like, well, I'm not wasting more of my time. Right. It's just me. It's just my personal no, opinion. No, I totally get that. Yeah. So is it, it's, it's a hard, you know, I think it, it, it sometimes takes an interview or two and that's okay. Better to do that and find the right person. I think it's important though to highlight that because people get discouraged if they go in and they're like, I don't like this person, blah, blah, blah. like they feel like, but it's like dating really. You have yeah. to find somebody that you mesh with who understands you can really understand what you're going through, empathize with you in a way that's productive for you so that you feel like you can make progress and tell them things, you know, like it's, it's not a one size fits all. I have definitely have friends who've gone to therapists who are just like, Oh, I just, I tried it once. And I was like, well, that therapist wasn't right for you. Like you, you can't just go and it's going to be great. You know, how many dates did you have different people? Did you date before you met your partner? Yeah. I couldn't have okay. said that better. Yeah. That's perfect. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. I couldn't have said that better. And also specialty matters, but um it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't maybe that I don't know if that's appropriate, but it does. But like so I'm my specialty area I would say is sex and couples. Mm-hmm. But I have clients that have all different things that are not couples that are, that have more severe diagnoses, but they feel comfortable mm-hmm. with me. So we work it. So of course I would have to feel comfortable treating them X, Y, and Z. Right. But if, if, if they're comfortable with me and they understand that this is my specialty, but I'm still happy to work with them, then I think that that's awesome too. We just need to find the right people for us. Exactly. Isn't that true in like every vertical of life? <laughs> like every way. Where are my people? <laughs> are you my mother? <laughs> you know, I am a dog. <laughs> um, is there anything else we didn't know we needed to know about mental health and well-being? Mm. Yeah, we, did we miss? Lot. But um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess what comes to mind is, you know, I think we need to have compassion not only for ourselves, which is most mm. important because that allows us to have compassion for others, but we definitely still need to try and put on some compassion for others. I say this to clients a lot. We have two choices in any given moment. We can respond mm-hmm. to, and I'm not just talking about a verbal response. I'm talking about a response to our life, to a situation, to the day. Mm-hmm. A verbal response also. I'm talking response in the general term. We can choose to respond out of love or out of fear. Mm. And those are pretty much the only two choices we have in any given moment. Uh, we're going to have to d- save that for another day because love and this, that's, that's big. That's, we could spend hours on that topic. Hours alone. and hours and hours, especially hours. when it comes to relationships, right? We can choose to respond with love or with fear. Mm, that's a good mic drop moment right there. Um, <laughs> and I'm out. Oh, Ariel, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you if they want to follow along with your functional therapy practice? Oh, sure. I'm the functional counselor on um, Instagram, which is really fun. Hopefully, I'm trying to post more. I'm really not good at that stuff. It's hard. So let's just it's a, it's, say that. <laughs> <laughs> Once or twice a week is good. I you know, try. you got clients, I you try. got family. So come on. <laughs> and then uh, stainaugustinecounseling.com is my website. Um, 
And yeah, those are the ways you can find me right now. I am starting my doctorate in October. And so oh. my client load will go down a tiny bit and we're going to be pushing into that space. I'm going to do my PhD in sexology. Oof. Good luck with that. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of work. I'm so excited. Better you than me, man. Better you than me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the mom who knows not a, my name is Brianna. This is the mama knows not a podcast. Thanks again to Ariel for being here and just have fun learning all the things you didn't know you needed to know. And I hope you're choosing to move through it in love. Yeah.